all ninjas. Calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja Radio. Today on Lime Ninja Radio. The things that I value of importance when I'm first seeing someone are what are your two or three primary goals that you're wanting to work on? And for me, if there are things that they're wanting to work on, if their main problems are, you know, I'm having so much difficulty sleeping and I feel like every time I work out, I just get, I, I can't recover. And, um, yeah, oh, by the way, I also feel like I, you know, sometimes have some loose stools. If you don't get really clear at what their goals are, then there's no way you can help them. This podcast is sponsored by the Lime Ninja Symptom Tracker. I'm so excited to tell you about our new Lime Ninja Symptom Tracker. One of the things I hear over and over again, whether it's talking to a patient in my office or consulting over the phone with a client, is just how difficult it is to keep track of progress on their Lyme journey. Recording symptoms daily or even weekly gives them too many data points. There are so many ups and downs, twists and turns that at some point they get lost and confused. The Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker takes all the guesswork out of tracking symptoms with a simple monthly questionnaire. Once a month is the perfect interval to see if that new supplement or protocol is working. Right now, when you take the Symptom Tracker questionnaire, we give you a simple composite score for the month. But we have big plans and the data you enter will not be lost as we roll out new features. Best of all, it's free. Just head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker and sign up. That's LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker. You'll be glad you did. Join us every Thursday on iTunes for the latest episode of Lime Ninja Radio. Hello, I'm your host and acupuncturist McKay Rippey, and this is episode number 207 with our good friend, Dr. Rob Abbott. Also welcome our show producer and the brains behind Lime Ninja Radio, Aurora. Hello, and in this episode you will learn how to get the most out of your time with the doctor, the best way to get a doctor to listen to you, and how the order you explain your symptoms matter. Thanks, Aurora, and be sure to listen all the way to the end of this podcast for the Lime Ninja Fact of the Day. You won't want to miss it. As you all know, Lyme disease is an international problem, and each week we have listeners join us from all over the world. This past week, we've had listeners from Poland to the Philippines and from India to Indonesia. Also, a big thank you to all you longtime Lyme ninjas. Aurora and I really appreciate you listening. And we'd like to welcome all the new listeners out there. Welcome to Lime Ninja Radio. We're glad you tuned in. And speaking of tuning in, this week's top 10 tune-in cities are... Starting at number 10, Seattle, Washington. Number 9, Green Bank, Australia. Number 8, West Branch, Iowa. Number 7, Austin, Texas. Number 6, Toronto, Canada. Number 5, Boca Raton, Florida. Number 4, Aberdeen, Scotland. Not the UK? Giving them in their own country today? I think they'd appreciate Scotland it. Scotland forever. Yeah, How does exactly. that song go? Anyway. Number <laughs> number three, San Diego, California. Number two, Milford, Delaware. And number one this week is Dudley in the UK. Squarely in the UK. Yes, squarely no, in the no UK. No Scotland there. All right. Moving right along. <laughs> Do you know your Lyme score? Oh, wait, before you ask that question. Oh, wait. I just discovered that. On our website, we had a blank button. So a button, when you clicked on it, nothing happened with the Lime score. So if you tried in the past to get to the Lime score through our homepage, I'm sorry, because you couldn't get there. It was a dead end. So we fixed that. So now you can go to the homepage, click there, go to the welcome page, explains it a little bit, and then click on the button, and it will work. So we fixed things and apologize for the inconvenience there. Sometimes we just goof up. Yeah. We apologize. So, head, again, head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com and fill out the Lime Ninja Symptom Tracker. All right, Aurora, let's move on and tell us a little bit more about today's guest, Dr. Rob Abbott. Dr. Rob Abbott graduated from the University of Virginia School of Medicine in 2017. He approaches medicine from an evolutionary and functional perspective and practices what he calls spiritually focused and evolutionarily informed functional medicine. He has opened a practice now in Charlotte, Virginia. 
Yes, I was very interested to interview Dr. Abbott because he threw off the mantle of residency. Basically, he left the traditional system of medicine. So he has his MD, he is a doctor, and he was going through his first year of residency and he was just a round peg in a square hole. And there were too many things he just couldn't get on board with and it wasn't a good fit. So he's off on his own now. So we had an interesting discussion about the medical system and the medical community and the compromises a doctor has to make to fit in there. And I think it'll give you great insight and maybe even a little bit sympathy when you're working with your doctor or you're trying to get your doctor to listen to you. He has a lot of really, really good insights. I think this interview will shed a lot of light and really teach you how to best use your physician. So have a listen. With that said, here's our interview with Dr. Rob Abbott. Dr. Abbott, hello. It's McKay Rippey from Lyme Ninja Radio. McKay, it's been a really, really long time. Since we've officially, you know, we, we chat from time to time. And I, I, by the way, I just have to call you Dr. Abbott. It's just, I don't know. It's okay. I mean, do whatever you have to do. <laughs> We're not quite in the in the South where it's Mister and Miss, but almost that kind of that kind of thinking. Now, before we get deeper into it, do you? I'm going to ask your permission to talk about it a little bit. You made a momentous decision in terms of your path uh, as an MD, and you you stopped your residency. That's a massive decision, and why? Yeah. So, so I did. So to put it into context for people, I've probably said it in one of the other podcasts before in giving context to like, what is residency? What is medical school? What, you know, what do you, what do these terms mean? So, you know, traditionally we go through in the United States, uh, four years of medical school. And then following that, you get a degree, your technical MD, and you go into a residency program in a specialty field, such as, in my case, family medicine or neurology, or essentially internal medicine, and then you can specialize in neurology. Um, people do surgery. You know, there's different sort of areas you can go into, obstetrics, gynecology. And that's really sort of your training grounds, really, so to speak, as a physician in that field. And you're working with other residents and attending doctors, supervising doctors who are teaching you. And it's really meant to be a um, very rigorous training to sort of <clears throat> maximize that time so that you're really becoming a physician in that in that field. And it's something that has been around for a while, but also it's it's still a very, fairly new structure in how we educate medical doctors. And it's gotten probably, some would say, less rigorous because of restrictions on work hours. Um, when you talk to people who are, you know, Doctors in their 60s and 70s or in even 50s might be saying, you know, when I was a resident, we worked 130 hours, you know, come up with whatever number is actually in a week. Um, you know, ridiculous hours with absolutely insane conditions. So that is technically on paper decreased, but still it's an incredibly rigorous training. And there's no resident out there or any doctor who's just completed residency wouldn't tell you otherwise. But So that was where I was in my training. I had just completed this past summer, my first year of a three-year program in family medicine. And yeah, I sort of, you know, given my path and passions for functional medicine and and recently too, um, within the field of clinical research uh, with functional medicine, it just kind of became clear that the goals and education that I was receiving in my residency training weren't really aligning completely with what I saw as my gifts, my talents, and what I wanted to be doing. And within my capacity of what I you know, could do to, to help people, basically ultimately decided that um, it was my in my best interest for my you know health and I think also the health of the people I was hoping to help that I stop the residency and pursue my own practice, pursue my research endeavors, and pursue education, as I call it, sort of on my, my own terms that would more directly inform my practice. Are you willing to say, like, what's what's broken in this, just this system? Because you obviously, if you thought this was the best way to educate people and to help people, you would have stuck with it. So what's, 
what, you know, where was it taking you that you didn't want to go? Cause you're like one of the most kind hearted, open minded, you know, and, and knowledgeable. I mean, you're, you're what the profession wants or says they want. And here they have a structure that they, you went through the first year of it. So it's not like you just looked at the uh, curricula and said, ah, that's not for me. It's like you actually went through the first year. And then at the end of that said, no, this is not going in the right direction. So what, what was that? Yeah, that's a, that's a certainly a loaded question. And yes, I'll, try it is. To, I'll, try to, I'll try to avoid um, being too fancy and to provide some really hopefully practical thinking points and talking points for people. So yes, I, I don't agree that our current structure is the best way to educate future doctors. And I can give you some pretty good reasons why. I think you know, most recently, I saw a study that looked at well, it was doctors in their you know, on average in their 50s, but seven out of 10 physicians said that they were disillusioned with their profession and would not recommend it to a friend or family member. So let's just stop there and say, you know, 70% of people, current physicians who've been practicing, say, you know, if they've been in their mid 30s, you know, 20, 25 years, would not recommend it to a friend or family member. That says a ton. And there's bunch of other statistics about burnout and depression and restrictions and how you can work with your patients. And so that, you know, that tells us there's a problem. It's not a person problem. It's, you know, it's not a doctor problem. It's not a patient problem. It's a, it's a system problem. It's a society problem. And we all have to be invested in it. So, you know, we started to do a little bit of analysis to say, well, why, why is, you know, why are 70% of physicians saying I wouldn't do this and I wouldn't tell my friends or family to do this? A lot of blame has been put at, you know, electronic health records and the amount of time spent charting. That's certainly a contributing factor. But as we know, in integrative medicine, everything is complex and multifactorial. So we're never going to find one thing. You know, the main thing that if we fix that, everyone you know, would be really would love their you know, profession and, and patients would be getting better. Now, that's certainly one thing that's been known to cause lots of problems. You know, within there is industry and sort of insurance and an insurance-based system. You know, doctors are kind of forced to see people in 10 to 12 minutes. And patients, even knowing that, feel like they're not, you, you can't be heard. You can't be evaluated. You can't feel connected in 10 to 12 minutes. And a doctor recognizes that. So he or she feels, at the end of the day, man, why, why would I want to go to work if I'm going to just like recognize that I'm going to be with someone for only eight to 10 minutes and just feel that emptiness, you know, that dissatisfaction. So you know, when, when you look at that, you know, those are some of the main things what I, you know, that people are talking about. What I actually see is a bigger problem as why people are not so you know, not happy in their current profession is that they no longer have the resources to truly help people or to get them better, Right. And we have drugs, we have great therapies. I mean, we have great life-saving techniques. There's some wonderful things that we've, through you know, technology and medical advancement, been able to do. But for a major chunk of people with chronic disease, we have very poor treatments. And no one wants to do a job that they feel like they can't do well. I mean, you know, no one wants to you know, have patients come in and then they leave their office after 10 or 12 minutes and they feel like they one didn't do anything and they're not getting any better. Like that. You know, for lack of a better term, that kind of sucks, right? You know, I wouldn't want to pursue a job that if, you know, more than half of my patients coming in that day, I felt like I really wasn't able to help them with what they were going through. So I see that as a huge thing that actually isn't getting as much variety, so to speak, or, you know, getting talked about as much as some of these other things with, you know, industry structure and insurance structure and, you know, and, and charting templates, but... Well, yeah, right. Well, let's let's just think about statistics and not in a very deep way, but if the standard of care for a healthy person is a once a year visit. And let's say you have how so how many uh patients would a primary doc have? 500, 1000? Oh, well, if you're more in the 2000? <laughs> yes, so on average the number of people they would see over a year is probably more like 2,500. Wow. Um, if you're in one of these new models, these new membership models, people are targeting between 600 to 800. Okay. Um, so, so let's say somewhere in between. So on the, on the low end, you're still six to 800 and on the deep end, you know, some bit super busy clinic somewhere, you're talking 2000 to 2,500. Mm -hmm. And, 
the healthy people you're seeing once a year for their physical and the sick people you're seeing all the time. In in some way, you have the, the police problem. And yeah. one of the things that happens with police officers is they're surrounded by the worst actors in society all the time. And you become jaded. You start to think that that's, that's the whole population. You forget that 99.89% of the population really is kind of towing the line and doing a pretty good job living life. But you're with the point whatever percent it is. Yeah. And I think what you're talking about is the, almost the same thing in medicine. By the time a doctor sees – let's just talk about the intensity of care. Let's say you, you see somebody – uh, 20 times over 20 years for their annual physical. Let's And let's not even assume that you're moving from practice to practice and having new people you're coming on. Let's say you actually sit still and have a relationship, a 20-year relationship. So let's say you've seen this person 20 times and maybe a couple times in between for some minor stuff here or there. But, you know, kind of the, the level of intensity you have is, oh, you need to lose some little weight. You need to stop smoking. You know, and um, your class, but your your test numbers all look good. We'll see you in a year, right? And that's yeah. the level of looking at. And you know, they don't really get to talk about. You know, how's your, you know, how is it going after you lost your job? How's it going since the divorce? You know, I know your kid's been sick. Those levels of stresses, those different things. Oh, you're not sleeping as well as you used to. You know, what's going on with that? So forth and so on. And then by the time they do make it through, kind of the threshold to being seen regularly. They're now really sick. And yeah. on this chronic stuff, it's too late. You know, and even even if there is some intervention, oh, well, you know, you know, now your blood pressure is raised. Or, you know, you had Lyme disease a couple years ago and things have been great since then, but all your tests are fine. And so we don't really know what's going on with you. And, you know, by the time they, you know, present really, really sick in Lyme disease, I don't know, either like super arthritis kind of stuff or serious mm -hmm. heart issues or chronic pain, debilitating pain, uh, it, it's, too, it's too late. And like you said, the tool. I heard somebody say recently, and this is in a, in a different setting, but we have lots of money, but we're we're lacking good ideas. Yeah, yeah, and it, it's in being so overwhelmed by caring for those sick people, it's incredibly difficult to go and learn anything that's new. And if you stay up with the literature, so to speak, that doesn't necessarily, you know, help you in a better way to care for your patients. And you know what I've you know, been discovering and what, you know, my solution. So rather than just, I can't just simply put all, you know, point out all the problems and say, you know, these are all the things that are wrong with it and not provide a, an alternative. But, you know, what I tell people is we need a different way to educate clinicians and be a lot more precise in doing it. The medical profession and the way we're educating doctors right now is, is still too broad so even within the specialization, the specialization is happening much too late. And even there, it's, you know, in a structure that's not entirely helpful. And we need to identify people, perhaps because of their passions and talents, earlier on and be more precise in our education. We're only going to add more things to the complexity of medicine that we should learn in school. So it's not like we can just, you know, keep adding on, oh, we learned about the, you know, we now know about the gut microbiome, so we have to insert that into the you know, lecture series. It, you have to get rid of things that are no longer of value, and you have to make that value judgment, but we have to change how we educate. And I'll argue that a medical student coming out of medical school with 200000 or $250,000 of debt, while we don't really think about it because everyone says, well, you're a doctor and you're going to get paid that over... That's a huge inefficiency. Does that really, I mean, does it take $250,000 to train someone to you know, become a medical doctor? And then we put them through a residency program that's extremely rigorous and people get depressed and you know, God forbid there was a, um, I get so you know, depressed that people are committing suicide. There's a great film um, or documentary thing that is coming out with one of my friends, Pam Weibel, about um, more broadly within the physician community uh, called Do No Harm about uh, physician suicide. But these are real things. I mean, the rates of you know, suicide in physicians is significantly higher than the normal population. That's not a, I don't think that's by accident or that's not an anomaly of statistics. 
So, you know, we're training people inefficiently and they're already burned out when they start residency. And then they see that the only thing that they can do when they're finished is join a hospital system that they don't really want to join because it has all those restrictions that we talked about, but they do it because they get money and lots of things that they don't need to think about. So we, you know, we do that for a couple of years and then people eventually get so fed up. They're like, I just can't be a part of this. And I was in DC a couple of weeks ago for a talk and met with some people who are at the foundational Institute for functional medicine training, the AFMCP. And as a, a gentleman who had just finished residency like two or three years ago and had been a hospitalist and he was there, getting ready to kind of start this functional medicine journey, but he was still a you know, hospitalist. And we got into discussion. And what it boiled down to, he was like, I, there's no amount of money you could give me that would make up for the livelihood that I, that I want. Like, you can't pay me enough to do this job in the way that it's structured. And so it's just, we've created this crazy monster of, of inefficiency and these malincentives of what we have to do. And no one's you know, getting better. And so what we have to realize is we have to do this differently. And I could go and make another example too, and I'll just kind of stay away from about the college system. I mean, heck, you could have that, you attach that same price tag for some people if you're going to a private institution, $200,000. Does it cost that amount of money for that experience? Like we, we can't keep doing it. We can't keep doing it. And so we have to train physicians better. And so if you identify someone like myself who actually, when I went back to school, like in my first year, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I had found the functional medicine bug. I had seen what was possible and I wanted to learn about it. And I dug into it and the things that were presented to me in school, I put them in that context. But my colleagues, they weren't presented with that material in that same context. So it wasn't made applicable. The great, the great example is sort of biochemistry and nutrition. It gets presented in the first year of medical school, but if you really don't see that that's, that's applicable in a clinical setting with how you can work with patients and understanding the TCA cycle, understanding what's happening in the mitochondria, understanding how someone's symptoms could be correlated to deficiencies of certain nutrients, and that you could actually measure that quantitated in certain types of organic acid testing. If you're not presented you know, with that all together in a clinical context, and you're told you just need to memorize this enzyme to pass this first board exam, I mean, easy thing to do is just memorize that enzyme and then forget about it. And then it's too late. If you try to teach it again, I mean, that's basically what we're trying to do with functional medicine education. It's medical school 2.0 for physicians is reteaching them all that biochemistry in a clinical context where they could use it. So it's an incredible inefficiency that that's just one example of things that we could do. And another beautiful thing of that, we don't even really need a medical school to do that. We need to outsource and get creative about how we educate people. Like if you gave me $5,000, actually, I mean, I could do a lot for free, but if you gave me $5,000, I could, and gave me a framework of what was, you know, what I really needed to learn in a clinical setting and apply that, I'll go out and find people teaching biochemistry. I mean, I'll go find Chris Masterchan. Um, you know, I'll go find these people and utilize their resources and ultimately become more proficient and in, in, in um, applied in a clinical setting much quicker than if it's you know given in the context that it's given now. Man, there's so many places to go with this conversation, but I want to take up the flag of having compassion for your physician. And I was kind of dreaming up headlines for this, this podcast where you were talking about that. So, <laughs> so essentially what you're presenting is somebody gets out there, they're in a hospital structure where uh, evidence-based medicine rules, which means that you do what we tell you. There's no creativity allowed. You have to toe the line or you're censured or you don't get paid or some combination of the two. And now you have a person with Lyme disease who thinks they might have Lyme disease. Maybe it's not confirmed and maybe it's a new infection or maybe it's a recurrent infection or reinfection and somebody's done their researching online. And of course, you know, you've been trained as a doctor to really distrust Dr. Google, but you know, these people have spent hours, days, weeks, months researching and, and finally feel like they have an answer for what's bothering them. And so they're very excited. They want to get some things done and they go into the doctor's office here. And how can this person best present their case so as not to get, you know, the loony bin 
check mark on their medical record? Wow. That's the question for me. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. So, wow. So I will say, I mean, let's, let's, so let's, let's just, I mean, so the easy answer for me is like, well, you just step outside the system. You go see somebody like Dr. Abbott, you go see mm-hmm. another nutritionist, but part of the problem we're, we're dealing here is as, as you're very well aware of is, is how do you fund this all? Not everybody is in a position either a to pay for it or B take out a second mortgage correct, to correct. pay for it. And I'm not saying nobody's earning their money. I, I believe everybody is, it's not like anybody's getting rich off of Lyme disease. It's the most complex, mm-hmm. crazy thing, but to get a whole series of tests on, you know, you're talking about, anywhere from $500 to $2,000 just to get the ball rolling here. That's that's expensive when it's not being done within the, the system, the yeah. money flow of the system. So how can you massage the system without pissing it off and having it yeah. spit you out? Yeah. So what I found, and this is going to be probably from, I mean, sort of speaking from my personal experiences, the things that I value of importance when I'm first seeing someone are, what are your two or three primary goals that you're wanting to work on. And for me, if there are things that they're wanting to work on, if their main problems are, you know, I'm having so much difficulty sleeping and I feel like every time I work out, I just get, I I can't recover. And, um, you know, by the way, I also feel like I, you know, sometimes have some loose stools. If you don't get really clear at what their goals are, then there's no way you can help them because their experience, whether it's objectively the true experience of what's going on, like you gave the example of, you know, a person comes in and they say, I think I have, you know, Lyme disease, whether they do or they don't, the only thing that matters is that they believe they have Lyme disease, their experience. And you have to honor that as a, as a physician. So I want to know what are the priorities of that patient? And so I guess homework, so to speak, for people, if you get very, very clear about the things that you want help with, your priorities, and put them first, I think, you know, that's going to be the biggest help for you in that initial setting. I know we think the biggest thing that, you know, gets people so derailed as they come in and even, you know, they'll be organized, they'll have their questions, they'll have their thing. And if it's the first time they're seeing someone, they start getting into their story then they might get interrupted and in whatever that amount of time is that we say people get interrupted in. And then not, they 19 de- seconds last <laughs> I looked. Yeah. Yeah. And then they get derailed and they try to get back to their story. And they, you know, there's is some there, you know, a therapy of sharing that story, connecting, but basically and then they, they get lost of what their goals were. Uh, and it makes you know, so much sense. And if the person you're working with knows very clearly, and I, you know, if you can be as direct and as clear as possible about that, that's only going to help you. Um, coming in with information that you've found and presenting it in a curious manner, I think, you know, I've talked about this before too, is going to be, you know, helpful. Um, rather than saying, you know, don't diagnose yourself, but present the things that matter most to you, the things and why they're difficult. We want to know, you know, what are you not able to do? Why are these things important? And then if you get, if the, the doctor gets you know, sidetracked, because once, you know, you present those things, doctor might start thinking about well, what could be causing that, you know, how can I address this? Things could get, you know, derailed off, but always come back to those, those goals and that, you know, that bigger why. Um, because yeah, if you, you know, if we correct your Hemoglobin A1C goes from 6.5 to 6.0, but that really wasn't one of your goals. The doctor thinks he did something great. You know, he he lowered your blood sugar, but that wasn't really on your list of things. So then you still are feeling the way you are, and there's not a fulfilling relationship. So I don't know. Maybe that was one concrete example of something that can be you know helpful if you're working with I mean any type of provider, but someone who um, you're first starting out with and you have these types of concerns. You know, I I think that maybe is a a really good point because you hear often with like a surgeon, well, I don't care what his bedside manner is. As long as he's the best surgeon in there, he can be a complete jerk. Just, you know, replace my (laughs) hip as, you know, better than anybody else in the area kind of thing. And I think we still, you bring up a really good point. I still think we want the doctor to be our friend. Yeah. Right. We want to have a relationship with that doctor. Unfortunately, again, this goes back to the system thing. They don't have the time to be our friend. 
they want to be your friend too. They want to be your friend too. Yeah. So if right, <laughs> so if you come in there and start talking about you know, you know your the story, they they're going to engage with it. It's human nature, but they're the, in the back of their mind, the time's ticking, and they're worried. They yeah. will pick out of the story what's important to them rather exactly. than what you say. So we, it's almost like you have to you have to play the system. It's like you have to know the game the doctor's playing, and that's you know get started. And and the 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 study that was done, it really was. And this is it's an old study, so maybe the data is updated. But the, the time between when a patient starts presenting their case and the first question the doctors asks was nineteen seconds. You know, that's less time than you put on your socks in the morning. So if you don't begin very clearly, so at 19 seconds, or let's say it's even a minute, they're already starting the differential diagnosis. And if you didn't lead, it's kind of like an old-fashioned newspaper story, lead with the lead, yeah. lead with the most important yeah. thing. If you haven't led with the most important thing, if you were saving it last to, you know, to really make your case, is there's a chance you may never get to it. Yeah, and and so yeah. that's that's so important. So if you know, you know, if you have, and and let's even deconstruct this a little bit, and you can help me if I'm right or wrong. If you have ten different system symptoms with your chronic Lyme disease, and one of them is the classic migrating joint pain, and that's such a classic Lyme symptom that maybe maybe even though that's like number seven on your list, maybe for you the doctor. If you're starting off new or trying to make a case you have chronic Lyme or something like that, maybe that's what you lead with. Not, you yeah. know, some of these more bizarre neurological symptoms that really nobody knows what's going on, even though they're the most annoying or the top of your list right now. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, that that does. I mean, there's basically what you just presented was potentially, you know, kind of two different approaches to that initial encounter. Having done your research, so to speak, you know, you've looked at Dr. Google and you've seen well, it looks like I have some of these symptoms and they seem to fit this, you know, category of things that they're describing. You know, if you can get at what you just said, what might be that triggering word for the physician, maybe you, you present that. But I would still sort of, you know, argue even within that structure. I mean, the first question, like I said, I ask people is, you know, what are the two to three most important things that you want help with? And I don't, you don't want to leave the doctor guessing what's most important to you. You don't want to leave that room, you know, with them having to figure out because you went on a story talking about, and it's not like a, you know, it's, you'll do it on purpose, but say you go off on a tangent story talking about someone in your family and because they asked about, you know, family history and then you never sort of got back to those you know, important things. You never want to have, you know, leave it to doubt that the doctor's having to figure out what are the most important things to you. But at the same time, as you sort of, you know, brought up, maybe, you know, how can I present to them, the best way that'll help them to think about my experience. I don't know. There's two different ways to go about it. I don't think you know, definitely there's neither right or wrong way to go about it, but I like the contrast anyway. <laughs> well, I think you presented in the terms of, okay, what are the three things? But if the three the three things are bizarre neurological things yeah. where, you know, it's you've done your research and it's, you know, you say, look, nobody knows. You've spent hours and hours researching. Like, well, it could be either really bizarre things, or, or there, there's no a there's no treatment for it. B mm -hmm. there's no diagnosis for it, and and C there's no consensus on on what's bringing these things. I mean, when I lost use of my arm, uh, you know, that was pretty clear. We're looking at the we had a name for it. Uh, and I even forget the name of the syndrome. So it's a, if it's a syndrome, maybe you don't lead with the syndrome because it's, <laughs> it's, right, you're laughing as a doctor because the syndrome, there's no treatment for it. We, we recognize it. It's a pattern we see. It's been named and recognized, but we don't know what to do with it. Yeah, there are no there are no good treatment outcomes. So perhaps there's you know you can marry the two. It's like if your main symptom is insomnia, right, and that's really at wrecking your health. There, there's no reason not to bring that in there. But at the yeah. same time, you know, insomnia, and you think it's you have Lyme disease, or you know you have Lyme disease. Let's say you tested no way that. That's going to trigger. Yeah, there's no way yeah. that's going to trigger. Oh, I should be thinking about at I, least in the average you know individual. It's not going to be what they're thinking about first. Oh yeah, that, right. That's a uh, there is no branch of the differential diagnosis that gets to Lyme <laughs> disease from insomnia. It's just yeah. not going to happen. Right. So, and and yet it's super important to you, and we all know you have to be able to sleep to heal. And so that shouldn't be left out because that's, you know, that's wants to be one of the main uh, signs and symptoms that we see improve. 
but you can't, you know, you can't within an ordinary system, they're not going to get to Lyme disease from insomnia. You have, you yeah. have to know that you, ha- you have to present, you know, your symptoms that don't lie. I'm not saying lie. <laughs> Necessar- yeah. Necessarily, <laughs> although may, I may have, may have, uh, may have uh, counseled some of my patients to to do that to get their doctor's attention, um, just to get. But just to, in, in my mind, when I do that, when I say, "Well, you might want to say this, this, and this," it's just to get a test done. It's like let's just get yeah. this ruled out. And usually, I'm not talking about you know some fifty thousand dollar test. We're talking about you know like a simple thyroid test. You know, yeah. it's like saying, well, here's what you can say. We want to see if your thyroid's operating properly. You yeah. Know? And, and so, but if you, if you lead with the more exotic stuff with, with often Lyme people have, then you're, you're not going to get there. You have to step outside the system. Okay. So let's wrap up here. I know you have to go. You've been very generous with your time. Uh, so le- what are your final thoughts on this really broad topic uh, how can people help themselves? And then how can people find you and your new group in Charlotte, Virginia? Yes, two good questions. So, you know, the thing that I want people to leave with is, you know, independent of your current position, maybe you're, you have nothing to do with, with medicine. Maybe you were a patient at one point. Um, as I mentioned before, this is a, it's a society, it's a society-wide problem. But what I see is, you know, we need to improve and really see the value of our education. I mean, there's things that we look at homeschooling as, an, as a great example. People that took it upon themselves because they recognized and thought, I can do this better than this system, and I want more control over it. I want a better say of what my son or daughter is going to be doing. You know, we need creative solutions to some of these problems. I'm talking kind of broadly about you know, education, medical education, education as a whole. We need creative solutions. What I see in the future is, you know, if someone knows that they want to be a functional medicine doctor, it would be a waste of time for them to go through medical training as it's set up now. We need a new system. And let's get creative. It's going to take some courageous people, you know, some within some institutional tru- structures to do that. Um, but it's also going to take creative patients. It's going to take courageous patients, you know. If there reaches a threshold, and we're sort of, in my opinion, getting there, of people that are demanding, you know, this type of care, this type of provider, you know, it's going to, I think, sort of push the system in that direction. Um, but we need to start getting creative about how we can educate ourselves more efficiently and never feel guilty about what you may or may not, you know, what you may bring into a doctor's office. You know, for me, I think it's the best thing. Like I said, to really, if you bring in that article that you found based on your symptoms that you thought it was, like whether you know that ends up being the thing or not, I'm just so grateful that you you were inquisitive, you were wanting to see what could be behind the things that I'm feeling, and you know, I would I would love to know that. And in that connection, but did you hang on, hang on there? Because you're 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 a round peg in a in a square hole. <laughs> were, were your colleagues of the same mind? Would they, did they feel that, I mean, when you're having, you know, th- discussions in the break room, is that you're saying, oh man, it was so great. My patient brought in this article and they were totally off base, but I'm so happily they brought it in because it <laughs> really opened up a wonderful conversation or they're saying, oh no, that idiot, you know, trying to tell, come on, what, what was going on in the back room there? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, I think it, it does come back to, you mentioned earlier, there's, there's lots of cynicism and lots of morbid humor. Um, we all know the system's broken and the way to cope for most people is to be cynical about it. It may be to make fun of someone thinking that they have this or some type of behavior or try to understand why they won't change or the amount of denial be going on. And it's a, just a reality of the system. In some places, I notice it much more strongly. The emergency room is a really challenging place. Um, there's some amazing people that can save your life, but perhaps doing it in a way that is just so morbid and so you know demoralizing that it's like, man, I, I, just, I can't be in this space. So, you know, it's 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 an interesting thing that you you know bring up. I think we've we're just reaching a, almost a point where everyone is so whether they'll admit it or not, sort of, you know, disillusioned or burned out with the structure. 
that we're hurting people unintentionally. I mean, everyone gets into the profession to provide a place for healing. Um, but when they get there and find that what they imagined they were going to be doing or could be doing is not happening, um, we need ways to cope with it. And I, I mean, I sort of inserting my personal bias again of how I feel, how I am seeking to you know, connect with people and try to solve some of those problems. But, you know, I, I think people more oftentimes are going to revert to having those more cynical conversations. And personally, I, I, I just didn't put my, myself in those places because I found it was easier for me to energetically and to function if I was not a part of those things. And that's maybe ultimately why I kind of decided to, to divorce myself of that institution um, was because it was just, there wasn't enough of, there was, I was compromising too much of my value system within it. And it's, there's never going to be a perfect institution or system. And people you know, really, we, we gravitate towards control and wanting to have complete control over our lives and feel like we're going to be fulfilled when that happens. That's not, that's sort of an illusion too, but we, we do want that, that freedom and that space to really connect and to, to honor our value system. And that's, I think people are finding like in the structure now that's not happening and it manifests in different ways, but I don't know, I kind of rambled off there, but that, that's really what happened in the back rooms when it came to, you know, I, I wasn't going to be present there. Um, and maybe I was looked at differently because I wasn't sitting in the same types of environments or engaging in the type, same types of conversations. But that was the only way that allowed me to get through that training to begin with. So um, maybe that answered your question. <laughs> I think it did. And uh, I, I want to thank you for your openness and honesty about it. There's, and what you bring to point is so important because I'm on the other side of the conversation, right? I hear the patients ranting and raving about their doctor or doctors who treated them poorly and hurt them deeply. Yeah. You know, they're, they're hurting, they're vulnerable, and they get really clobbered by somebody in authority. And... You know, it's, it's, I think to keep the compassion open on both sides. On both is, sides. Yeah, yeah. Is, is so important. And it's so hard to do after you've been hurt. Uh, it's, it's much easier just to, you know, let's p take up the pitchforks and, <laughs> and kill them all yeah. rather than, you know, and let's, but also to have realistic expectations. What, what, what prompted, me to have this conversation kind of again with you, we've had it in other ways too, is that the system is brutal. Nobody, nobody likes the system. Nobody, yeah. any stakeholder, quote unquote, stakeholder, the patients don't like it. The doctors don't like it. The medical companies don't like it. Uh, you know, there's this fabulous uh, story about a, a small medical device manufacturer who is essentially almost run out of business by, by the federal government. And they weren't doing anything wrong. They just were targeted for a district attorney to make his name during election year. And so they went after him. And if they didn't happen to have a background in law and some deep pockets, they would have been put out of business. So those, they don't like the system, right? Yeah. You know, I bet if you get inside the, even the drug company, which, you know, suppose he's making all this money and they do make a lot of money, some of them, but I bet they're not happy with the system. The FDA, I'm sure anybody working for the government doesn't like the system. It's like, nobody likes the system, you know, and the, the only people winning perhaps are the people who are totally cheating the system. And, you know, there are a few like those, but you know, they get, they get what's coming to them. They always get caught and, and taken down. So it's, you know, it's, it's just a world of pain, you know, and, and the design of the system is to try and help somebody. And it's just, it's really, really tough. So yeah. part of it is going into the system knowing, okay, look, the system is limited in what it's going to provide for me. It's not going to provide an outlet to be heard. I need to go somewhere else for that. Yeah. Right? Maybe it's a support group. Maybe it's blogging online. Maybe it's telling my story in a documentary, whatever it might be. But, you know, you have to, you have to stay within the confines. You, you wouldn't expect, again, you know, we don't expect it necessarily from a surgeon to have great bedside manner, you know, but we still expect it from a doctor. But the doctor can't provide that anymore. They don't have time. They really don't. It's sad. They wish they did. They want to. So if you do start telling your story, they will listen because, oh, my God, I get to hear somebody's a story about a human being here rather than typing into my medical records. I can pause for a moment. 
Yeah, and yeah. I would say that we're as a whole, you know, people are craving that type of connection on both on both ends. And I love how you being realistic with your expectations within that structure. And I love how you pointed out, you know, there's so many ways within a community to get that connection to really share your story and be heard and to have that space and to grow from it. I mean, it's why being in a community is so important as part of the healing process. I think no person heals on an island. No one gets better, you know, on an island. And so recognizing what's possible within that system. And you know, uh, the other piece of it is trying as best we can to have the practice of, you know, parigraha, have non-attachment to, you know, an institution or structure. And that's what's motivated me to, to step out and to seek new things and to see if we can make improvements. And if something's not working, let it go. And that's such a hard practice to do. But having those realistic expectations of what can actually be accomplished here and in this amount of time, you know, will help tremendously with those moments of reflection when you're getting, you know, upset at a physician for not doing something or you're upset by month one that all your symptoms haven't gone away. And, you know, you know, everyone deeply wants to be loved and to connect with other human beings. But there's very few malicious people that I've ever come across. Um, they don't survive in the types of, you know, positive loving societies that, you know, we create. And so um, those are all wonderful pieces of advice that I think we have to keep sharing and having these types of, sort of intimate conversations, both as patients and physicians and other practitioners. We need to have those conversations because that's how all of us are going to heal through what we know right now is imperfect and broken. Dr. Abbott, if somebody wants to have a long conversation about their health with you, <laughs> Yeah. And they happen to be in the Charlotte, Virginia area. I yeah. don't know if you do phone consultations yet, but how do yeah. they get hold of you? Yeah, so I am um, in yeah Charlottesville, Virginia, which is sort of in central. I'm sorry, Charlottesville. Central, I apologize. Yeah, Charlotte, it's, it's, you know, I've actually mixed it up all the time, too, because I have family just north of Charlotte, North Carolina. <laughs> but I am in Charlottesville, Virginia. It's sort of in the, the center of the state. Um, and right now we're just getting started. Um, you can go to our website, or, and we're a team practice, I should you know, reiterate, um, coming to our, our practices. I have two other partners um, and fellow practitioners, Carrie Cooper and Ryan Hall, and we function as a team um, because we see that that's really what's important for helping people to heal. It's never a one-person job. Um, but you can, um, and maybe you'll have links on the, the page. Yes, our definitely we'll do that. Yep. Um, is, is www fxmed.com um, and there's a phone number I don't have it offhand that you can call to um, actually call, you know talk to one of us and set up a initial appointment where we are going to be doing you know telemedicine for people functional medicine anyway outside of, of the state of Virginia um, but we are at least initially we're wanting people to come for an initial consultation but we are going to be expanding to do telemedicine um, fully for people if they're really wanting the sort of functional medicine and integrative medicine approach um but going to the website and you know either making an onboarding appointment there or making a phone call um to our, our clinic are going to be the best ways to to get started beautiful thanks so much and thanks for your time no thank you this was kind of a cathartic experience for me so i, I appreciate you for having me back hopefully uh, it helps people in some little small way who are, are listening This was a really interesting conversation. You know, it reminded me of my pre-med friends when I was in college. Most of them were second-generation doctors. and Well, they weren't doctors yet. They weren't doctors yet, no. Going but, to be second-generation. So <laughs> exactly. their parents were doctors. Exactly. And they were already a little bit jaded about what they foresaw they had to go through. In and what way? Just in terms... I hate to call it this, but the suffering game of college and school. Uh, they weren't looking forward to eight years or ten years no. of, depending on the residency, of yeah, not being happy. Yeah. 
there was there's always a little bit of a oh I'm suffering more than you do kind of competition in um, in in college and that was especially pronounced amongst my they went to the wrong college <laughs> friends yeah and so Hamilton wasn't a party school huh oh not for a, them not for them not that, for them no sad to hear yeah well I mean on the other hand it's like good for them because they knew what they wanted and they were working hard for it and they knew what they had to do but they they weren't getting a lot of enjoyment out of it now. Hmm. So if you're going into being a doctor already in the suffering mode, mm -hmm. do you ever get out of it? That's an interesting question. Well, Dr. Abbott got out of it. <laughs> Thank goodness for him. He bailed. He, he jumped out, took his parachute, and landed on his feet in Charlotte, Virginia. So if you're in the area, be sure to look him up. He's absolutely delightful and a wonderful person. If you like what we're doing here at Lime Ninja Radio, hit the subscribe button so you don't miss an episode. And if you really like what we're doing, leave us a review on your podcast app. And big shout out to all our patrons. Thank you for making the world a better place for people with Lyme disease and other tick-borne illnesses. If you have any feedback, suggestions for guests, anything really, send an email to feedback at LimeNinjaRadio.com. We do read all of the emails and try to respond to as many as we can. So if we don't, if you don't hear back from us, we apologize. It's just sometimes the volume is too much. But rest assured, we have read your comments and we do like them. So keep them coming. And last, as you longtime Lime Ninjas know, this podcast would not, could not be complete without the Lime Ninja fact of the day. Did you know a ninja once went to court for a speeding ticket? The cop pleaded guilty. Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.